our Old Testament lesson, Exodus 13, verses 1 through 16. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a feast of the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be, eat, shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand, and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament lesson and sermon text. Matthew chapter 26. We pick up at verse 57 and continue through verse 75. God's holy and inspired word. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, 
you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus was just arrested. The civil government didn't arrest him. But the religious authorities did. Their corruption and wicked motives have been obvious throughout Matthew's Gospel. And Jesus often exposed their lies, their hypocrisy, their corruption, and so they wanted to silence him. If they had had actual reason and cause to arrest Jesus, they would have done it publicly. They had many opportunities to do it. After all, they were viewing him as a threat to the nation. And so why would they have allowed such a threat to continue to teach publicly, to continue to instruct the crowds, and thereby gain a following? But we are seeing here that there is really no lawful charge against Jesus. So the religious authorities dispatched something like a militia in the middle of the night to go and find him and arrest him while he was dutifully observing the Passover vigil. Recall, the Passover was to be, from generation to generation, a night of watching, a night of prayer. And this is what Jesus, Jesus was doing. Now, of course, this night of prayer was amplified because he knew what was coming, but it was a night of watching nevertheless. And so this militia dispatched from the religious authorities comes up to pious Jesus, who's obeying Old Testament law, who's done nothing wrong, and they arrest him to silence him, this one who was compromising their own power. But, Lest we get carried away, pointing the finger at the non-disciple, the Jewish leaders, we should quickly remember that the disciples were no better 
with their lies and falsehood. Ten of them abandoned Jesus after they had just promised to him their own fidelity. Now they're off living a lie. The only one that's been sort of left, sort of, is Peter. And he, in our text, vocalizes the lie and denies Jesus three times. Whether we look to the disciples or to the non-disciples, we see falsehood, blasphemy, and evil. But in the midst of all this, in the midst of all the falsehood, blasphemy, deceit, stands Jesus Christ. The embodiment of truth. The one described in Revelation as the faithful witness. Though condemned and abandoned by all, he would soon be accepted by the living God. Though humbled and broken, he would soon be exalted to the Father's right hand, the heavenly throne. And even though truth is about to be condemned by lies within our text, we will soon discover that Jesus was being condemned for our lies, our blasphemies, and bearing those things and our charges against us, he was taking upon himself. And so, beloved, let's begin with verses 57 through 68. Let's begin with this kangaroo court. Now, boys and girls, a kangaroo court is a way of speaking. It's an idiom that talks about a trial that's unfair. We can call that a kangaroo court. It fails to follow the rules of justice. There are many ways we see this within our text. First off, note, this trial, so-called, is being held in a location where trials were not allowed. Verse 58 indicates that Jesus was taken to the private residence of the high priest. We see this where Peter is following Jesus, enters into the courtyard of the high priest, and there is kind of engaging and watching from a distance. This means that this kangaroo court was convening in the priest's home. Now, have you ever witnessed a crooked political vote? Imagine, just imagine for a moment, that the Cincinnati City Council is in session. They're sitting there and hearing different perspectives and then casting their formal votes. But you can tell, you know, that they had actually made up their minds long before. Clearly, all common sense and reason is on the side of truth, yet they vote on the side of falsehood. What do you know? There were backroom deals being had. Now, this is, of course, imaginary, right? Because that would never happen in Cincinnati. No! But this is the kind of thing that's happening here in our text. Here we have the backroom dealings. That's what's happening here in the high priest's house. This is not the formal official courtroom vote yet. That's coming up soon. That's going to happen in the morning. A second clue that this is a kangaroo court 
So this is the middle of the night. The Jews at this point were supposed to be worshiping God with a Passover vigil. But instead, select members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, gather to the priest's house and they're deciding how they're going to dispose of Jesus in the morning. What kind of a charge can they come up with that would stick? Now, there were 70 members of the Sanhedrin. This is the middle of the night. Clearly, not every one of them is going to fit in his house for one, and two, not everyone's going to be available in the middle of the night. This is actually kind of hinted at in chapter 27, next week's sermon text. In chapter 27, verse 1, it speaks about when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus. All of them. In other words, when morning comes, the entire Sanhedrin will be there to conduct official business in the, in the proper place. But now where we are in chapter 26, it's not time for the entire Sanhedrin to be there. These are the influential members, the power brokers. They're meeting in the middle of the night to figure out how they will officially condemn him in the morning. Third, Note that the Jewish leaders did not really have any dirt on Jesus prior to the arrest. They just hated him. They arrested him and then they tried to figure out what he did wrong. They didn't have an arrest warrant. No, this is not justice. Fourth, when the leaders had nothing to bring against him, <clears throat> they started to bring in deceptive witnesses. But even though they were twisting the truth, they still couldn't get a charge against Jesus. He's innocent, clearly. Matthew gives us an example of how these false witnesses were twisting the truth. We know from John's Gospel that Jesus had, yes, predicted that a temple would be destroyed and rebuilt. But John tells us that when Jesus was making that prediction about the destruction and rebuilding of the temple, he was not talking about the Jerusalem temple. Jesus was talking about his own body, which was a temple. That would be destroyed. That would be raised up in the resurrection. But the false witnesses spun his words in a way that would make the mainstream media blush. They took his prediction of his own death and resurrection and made him into an aspiring terrorist, claiming that he was plotting to bring down the Jerusalem temple. Obtaining the truth was never the goal of this court. A fifth reason this is a kangaroo court is that the high priest, note, presumes that Jesus was lying under oath, a charge of blasphemy. You see, the high priest became frustrated by the fact that they couldn't get two of these false witnesses to agree on anything. He needed something to stick. And so he puts Jesus under religious oath. Verse 63, I adjure you by the living God. Now, the high priest is a religious authority. He is allowed to put someone under oath. This is like what might happen if you are in a courtroom 
and you are asked to place your hand on the Bible and to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. You're being placed under oath by a lawful authority. The high priest is a lawful authority. He places Jesus under oath and then asks him if he is the Messiah. Let's just get down to business, the high priest is thinking. And in effect, Jesus answers, yes, yes, he is. Now that statement right there, that answer is enough then for the high priest to accuse Jesus of blasphemy and condemn him to death. But notice, they had zero proof that he was lying. They didn't even try. They just assumed that from the outset. He must be lying. Even though he's been teaching the word of God without contradiction, without accusation. Even though He's been performing signs and wonders, the likes of which they had never seen before. Even though all these things were true, they just took it at face value, he must be lying. They never wanted to get to the point of justice. No. In our first point, we have a kangaroo court. Second, we move on from the lies of the non-disciple to the falsehood that characterized a disciple, Peter, in verses 69 through 75. He is, you could say, in a court of public opinion. He alone followed Jesus after the arrest. The other disciples hightailed it. They wanted to get away from it. Their lives were seen in their deceptive lives. Peter follows Jesus, but from a distance. He doesn't want to get too close to then be associated with Jesus. He's interested to see what might happen. Both Jesus and Peter are interrogated. Notice that, the similarity. Both Peter and Jesus are interrogated. They're questioned. Jesus is questioned formally by those who actually have power and authority. Peter, on the other hand, is questioned by those who have zero power and authority. First, the lowly slave girl asks him a simple question. Weren't you with Jesus? That's innocent enough. That's big events, big news in the middle of the night. Hey, weren't you with him? Peter denied all association with Jesus and then he promptly withdraws himself to remain further afield from Jesus to create some more distance. First he's in the courtyard, then he removes himself back to the doorway to try to make some space between the two of them. I think this physical, geographical distance, this is probably a metaphor as well. There's more distance now, spiritually speaking, between Jesus and Peter. Then, Another slave girl comes up, recognizes Peter, and tells the other bystanders around him, even all the way back by that doorway, that this must be a follower of Jesus. Well, this time it gets ratcheted up a whole nother level, because Peter doesn't just deny it, but he also takes an oath to deny it. Recall how Jesus was placed under oath. A third time then, Peter is questioned again by bystanders. You see, they heard him answer the two slave girls. They could hear his accent 
You're not around these parts, boy. And so they say, you're from Galilee. We heard your accent. You sound like that Jesus. We know who you are. You must be one of them. Now again, there seems to be no danger for Peter. They're just trying to connect the dots. And it gets ratcheted up again. He doesn't just deny Jesus. He doesn't just take an oath, but he explicitly calls down a curse upon himself. I mean, this is really wild in some ways. Except for the fact that he is the embodiment of you and me. This is the disciple denying Jesus, blaspheming with his own mouth. He is emphatic. He did not know Jesus. The rooster crowed, and the one who was charged, prophesy, prophesy. Well, his prophecy comes true. Peter did deny Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. Whereas Jesus testified faithfully before the kangaroo courts, Peter failed within the courts of public opinion. Now, I've been saying public opinion because I don't think there's any reason to think he's in actual danger. They could have arrested Peter had they wanted to. I mean, remember, he drew out a sword and chopped off the ear of the high priest's own servants. Yet they didn't try to arrest him. There's no indication of that, at least. I mean, they weren't really in concern. They were there for Jesus. For Jesus. And now that he's here, there's no indication the slave girl could have done anything. Those bystanders. They're just trying to figure it out a little bit. Hey, you know him, right? Is he who he says he was? That's probably what they're trying to get at. This is big news. Middle of the night arrest. What's going on here is not at all that Peter's in danger. There's no indication of that. He just simply is ashamed of Jesus. He does not want to be associated with him. The court of public opinion was now looking down on Jesus, and Peter didn't want them to look down on him as well. So whereas Jesus testified faithfully, even under oath, Peter took God's name in vain, taking an oath and denying that he knew Jesus, committing the sin of blasphemy in the courts of public opinion. Our second point. Now, two things of application I'd like to draw our attention to here. The first is that we see within our text the fallenness of mankind, and that we are people characterized often by lies. We see this in our text in both the non-disciple and also the disciple. This is a tragic reality. Back in the garden, the serpent entered in, and he began to do what? To lie. Jesus then called him the father of lies. And so then, falsehood and lies begin to then characterize mankind who believed the satanic lie in the garden. And then comes to a place where then we begin to be characterized as those who have this dangerous thing in our mouths called our tongue that James brings out. The tongue that sets things on fire. That brings forth curses 
and bitterness and wrath. This, of course, characterizes the non-disciple who are intimidated by Christ and the Word of God. For after all, the Word of God, as we see with Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, it challenges the world. It exposes false gods. And the biblical teaching comes with some rough edges that cause us at certain points to be upset by it. And unless the Holy Spirit changes our hearts, we reject it. We prefer to live in our lies and pat ourselves on the back and do what we want to do rather than to do what our Creator and God calls us to do. It's obvious that Jesus had done nothing wrong, but that didn't matter and it doesn't matter to the surrounding world. He needs to be canceled. He needs to be silenced. The heart of the non-disciple, unless it is changed by the Spirit, the heart is oriented towards sins and lies. So the truth is condemned wherever it is inconvenient. But again, lest we puff ourselves up in self-righteousness, let us recall the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3. In Romans 3, Paul says that every man is a liar. Not just those Gentile non-disciples, but also God's covenant people, the Jews, the disciples. Paul in Romans 3 brings all under the condemnation of God's law, calling everyone a liar. He does this by quoting from the Psalms and indicting the disciple just as much as the non-disciple. He describes us like this. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Disciples oftentimes advance lies, not just truth. And this has been clear in Matthew's narrative. Recall Judas, that dino, the disciple in name only. His life was one big lie, even though outwardly he was a disciple. Consider the remaining disciples who were true believers, yet still they partook of the Holy Supper and reassured Jesus right after that that they would be faithful to him, yet they weren't. They lied. And then Jesus, or Peter, pardon me, has the biggest issue because he not only reassured Jesus that he would be faithful, but he boasted that he would be more faithful than all the other ones. And he denied Jesus three times. Behold yourself in a mirror, beloved Christian. Peter did this. We do this. With our lives and with our verbal lies. How often do we drag God's name through the mud? Sometimes in words, oftentimes in deed. Recall, God's name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is placed upon you in your baptism. His name. 
You are also called Christian, bearing the name of Christ. And yet, as Paul teaches in Romans 2, when we sin against God, we are therefore blaspheming His name. When we don't speak and live in a way that is worthy of that name that's been placed upon us, we drag God's name through the mud. There's also a need to testify faithfully, and like Peter, we often fail. It's increasingly difficult to do this in our world. As our culture turns more and more against Christianity, we can quickly lose friends, family, employment, if we espouse biblical convictions. Just imagine standing in a crowd of people and your boss is there. Perhaps it's a work Christmas party or something like that. You overhear the crowd blasting Christians as intolerant and filled with hate. But then someone says, hey, isn't such and such a Christian? And everyone turns and looks at you. They say, is that true? Are you one of those Christians? Remember, they just talked about them being full of hate and intolerance. You know that if you say yes and voice traditional Christian beliefs, that not only will they castigate you as a hateful person, but you may very well lose your job. Your boss is right there. That pit we feel in the stomach, just thinking about that, helps us to understand that sin still dwells within us. Maybe we testify faithfully. We probably do it even sheepishly. It's a hard position to be in. Yet, as we learn from Paul, every man is a liar. This includes you and me. Our second point of application. We come to Jesus. And he is the one who's condemned for our blasphemy. Condemned for our lies. His faithfulness in the courtroom does not just highlight Peter's infidelity by way of contrast, but also we're seeing here that Jesus is obeying the law where Peter did not, where you and I have not. Jesus stood in that place, obedience and also condemned on our behalf. But first here, notice how Matthew assures you of Jesus' identity. He is our messianic Savior. Matthew does this through the use of irony. The Jewish leaders mock Jesus, asking him to prophesy, right? Meanwhile, one of his prophecies is being fulfilled. Peter was denying Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. Ironically, the high priest was interrogating Jesus from his position of power. I call this ironic because then Jesus quotes from Psalm 110 that he would be at the right hand of God. What's going on in Psalm 110, you might ask, which we sang earlier, 
Well, that psalm is all about how Jesus is the greater high priest. Not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. Not a high priest that would die, whose descendant would then become, step into his place, but a high priest who would be a high priest forever and ever and ever. Not only do we see Matthew showing us that he is the true prophet and priest, but we also see a demonstration that he is the king. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? The high priest asks. That's language that was spoken only of the Messiah, of course. Then Jesus speaks not only about Psalm 110, recall the priest after the order of Melchizedek was also a king, both and. Just like the ancient Melchizedek was a priest and king. But Jesus speaks as well about coming on the clouds of heaven. An allusion to Daniel chapter 7. Another messianic royal text. So you see, Matthew is reminding you of who Jesus is in this lowly position. He is your prophet. He is your priest. He is your king who is being charged with blasphemy and about to be condemned to death. And is that reason that we learn of his identity because, beloved, we need to understand that he was doing that for you. Every man is a liar, yes. We have dragged God's name through the mud, yes. We have blasphemed the holy name in our deeds and in our words. And so what was it then that Jesus was being charged with? Blasphemy. He was carrying your sins, beloved. He was carrying your charge. This is why he was remaining silent as long as he could. Remember, this Jesus is the one we've seen throughout Matthew's Gospel who anytime he's challenged verbally, he just destroys his opponents with grace and truth, of course, with love. But he always wins because truth is on his side. Don't you think Jesus could win if he wanted to in this moment? He's not. Because he's willingly carrying your blasphemies. He's willingly taking your charge. He does not want to dispute it because the blasphemy is real. The charge is real. It's just not Jesus' blasphemy. It's your blasphemy. It's mine. And so he was receiving it and welcoming it. He was welcoming the charge because it's your charge. And he wanted to stand in your place because he loves you. Do you see that? If you're not hearing anything else I've said this entire sermon, hear that. He was welcoming and receiving the charge of blasphemy and the condemnation that came with it because he was carrying your charge of blasphemy. And he did not want you to be condemned on the last day. So Jesus was going to the cross for you like a sheep that before its shears is silent. 
So he opened not his mouth. Beloved, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold that one who loves you more than anyone in heaven or on earth. Jesus, your prophets, your high priest forever, and your king who defends you. Behold that one, throughout his suffering and shame, became low for you, that on the day of judgment, you will not be brought low. But rather, on that day, the charge and the sins having been absorbed on the cross, you will not be brought low, but you will then instead be exalted. Praise be to Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.